Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Alex. How are you? You're on the road, I believe. You're a kind of literary Ooh, um, literary am. Jack Kerouac. Well, he was quite literary, but, you know, you take my point. You're talking yes. to everyone. A literary festival, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, and you know what? As I sat in rugby services, and I know you always love my tales of a service station, well, I'm here to tell you that, you know, it's almost worth planning a trip that takes you to rugby services. Is it's it? It's so nice. Okay. It's really the nicest service station I've ever been to. And it starts with language, because as you're walking in, it says, welcome to rugby, scrum on in. Oh, nice. And I just thought it was brilliant. I thought, well, you've made me laugh before I even get to the... Before I've even bought any Starburst. Exactly. Exactly. But it goes beyond even the Starburst. It's got a Greg's. It's got a lovely Greg's in it. So anyway, there we are. Yes, that was on a drive from Cheltenham, where I've been at the Literature Festival there, to Cambridge, where I will be working this week. And I had a great fun time and did loads of fascinating things but I must say the good programmers of Cheltenham have me down as the most extraordinary generalist you can imagine because I talked about the uncanny about haunted houses about bonk busters about mental health issues about lexicography to the novelists Audrey McGee and Max Porter and I talked about Barry Cryer. And if that, I mean, really, wow. you know. All human life is there. All human life <laughs> was there. Uh, but it and was who immense you, who fun. who are you talking to in Cambridge? In Cambridge, I'm talking to Anne Enright and Sandra right. Nickman, not together, but in quick succession. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. very, very good fun. So I'm having a good time. But in the midst of all this, obviously, as a podcaster, I never travel anywhere without my microphone. So, of course, of course, I can podcast on the road. And what a show we've got this week. We head outside as Ruth Skur explores a magnificent biography of Claude Monet. And we stay outside, in fact, as Fiona Stafford tells us about Wordsworth and the politics of tree planting. But first, what are the limits and possibilities of a biography of interiority, a portrait of a person's inner life? And what if that person and their work are already very well known, so well known as to be a part of the backdrop of cultural life, but not often re-examined? Such is the case with Claude Monet, and Jackie Wulschlager has attempted just such a biography. Very happily, we've got a wonderful piece on it by Ruth Skirt, who knows all about biography, about French, about art and gardens, everything you need to know and more. Welcome, Ruth. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. I mean, Ruth, talk about In Your Wheelhouse, this book. I mean, this is gardens and biography and art. I know. Very lucky. (laughs) You start your piece by telling us what Monet was not. 
not much of a writer, not much of a talker. And the way you describe him is really refreshing. It's not in kind of hushed tones. It makes him feel very immediate. Did he, did he feel like that to you? Well, as a result of the biography, I think that is the advantage of um, a biographer deciding they're going to train their lens as tightly as they possibly can on their subject's inner life. And by the end of the book, you do feel that you've been very, very close to him as a result of that. Mm. And tell us about what he said about, oh, not much of a writer, not much one for talking either. Yeah, Sue, I start with a a letter that he wrote to two of his stepdaughters. And even that's quite interesting. It's sort of killing two birds with one stone. You know, he's writing to to them both in one letter saying, you know, thank you for your letters. I would have liked to write to each of you individually, but, you know, writing's really not my thing so please don't hold it against me Mm. and then you have the the sources which actually turn out to be sort of you know over 3,000 letters of his that have actually survived and and been published in French and Jackie Wuschlager draws on those and also does archival research but it's interesting that although his impression is he doesn't actually like writing letters there are some now they're not often very intimate letters so you know she's had to reconstruct his interiority from a lot of quite you know everyday facts that are coming up in the letters he's not one for a great confessional writing or anything like that it's interesting where all the the real sort of emotional sources are as you would expect in his painting Mm, mm. well there's, there's that amazing quote that you mentioned that very surprising remark where he sort of dismisses art and literature. That's actually a friend of his reporting something that he is apparently said on another occasion. And it, no, it, it is very striking. So the friend is writing to him saying, look, I'm going to come and see you. And and don't worry, you know, we'll, ju- we'll just talk about gardening because, you know, as you say, art and literature, it's all humbug. There's, there's nothing but the earth. So this is obviously someone who wants to come and see him and is, is trying to reassure him. He's not going to come and, and start sort of drilling him on his theory of art or, or, or contemporary literature or, or anything like that. They're just going to go around the garden and talk about the plants, which is what Monet enjoyed doing when he wasn't painting. Mm. We all like to think that gardening is a be all and end all. And, you know, but for Monet, it really, apart from painting, it really does seem to have been like quite a a really central part of his life. He didn't just kind of come home and potter a bit, did he? It also seems to be a kind of, as as you're saying, because you start talking about his mother. And I should say also, I didn't know anything about Monet biographically. And I feel I've had such interesting insights now from this piece and obviously from the book. But gardening, that way of expressing himself, it's almost like it was another kind of language, as paint was too, for the difficulty to replace the kind of difficulty of expressing emotions in words and more directly. Is that fair, do you think, Ruth? It's absolutely fair. It's fascinating. I, mean, I don't think I've ever read a book about such an obsessive and passionate gardener. So obviously, we all know that he ends his life with those water lily paintings that go over and over painting them they they are his water lilies I mean he's looking into his specially constructed pond at that point but the connection with gardening goes right back again he doesn't say very much about his own life or his feelings but there is a remark where he says look I learned gardening in my youth when I was very unhappy we don't know what that connects to but I think the sense that someone who is an absolute perfectionist in their work does find rest and almost release in in being in the garden and in you know you have to accept when you're gardening that it is never going to be perfect and it's just constant sort of project and I personally have when I was a child quite severe OCD and I do think there is a connection between sort of overcoming that and gardening certainly in my life and, I, and I've talked to other people about it who have said the same you know that sort of weeding is perfect for people with OCD you know it's absolutely brilliant and I think perhaps Monet who was such a perfectionist in his work 
did find genuine comfort and relaxation in the garden, quite aside from the visual aspects which were so important to him in his painting. That's really fascinating. Do you think it was satisfying because you get to sort of correct the mistakes, as it were, let's say the weeds, but equally you have to admit that it is not perfect and and you can't control all of it? I do. It's that encounter with nature, isn't it? And, and those, I mean, it's it's also very, it's very soothing. I mean, it's so, you know, if you're weeding a particular patch or something, I mean, I should say here that at its peak, Monet had six gardeners working for him. So although I'm sure it was a big garden, a little bit of his own curating of the plants, etc., and weeding, but I'm not claiming that, you know, he, he was doing the major amount of the work. But yes, no, I, I do think it is, it's a direct encounter with nature and an understanding that you know nothing nothing is fixed you know you make an intervention in your garden one week and then you've got to follow it through the next and the next it's it's a it's an evolving project and personally I that's one of the things I I absolutely love about it. We talk about this a lot Lucy and I you have to yield to the flow with gardening don't you you cannot attempt you have to give yourself over including to things like great disappointment uh and you know promise denied but then also suddenly promise just actually rather wonderfully flourishing and flowering but it's aside from this alongside this in your piece you really focus on the part that his relationships with women have played and of course that starts in a sense with an absence in his youth doesn't it with the death of his mother and with the difficulty of that relationship beforehand and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that well yes Uh, so Moni's mother died when he was in his teens and he never spoke about it you know at least not on record there's no trace of him ever ever discussing her until towards the end of his life when obviously he had become the most famous living artist in in France and interviewers would turn up and they would try to get something out of him about his early life and the death of his mother and um, Jackie Walschläger shows that actually he was deliberately obfuscating about that you know he he deliberately gave them wrong information even sort of dating her death to to later than it actually was and and things like that and Jackie concludes that you know he actually wanted that episode to be in silence he wanted to to shroud it if you like it I mean perhaps was a very very profound loss but this is the kind of she deals with so brilliantly in in the biography it's very very tactfully and subtly done so so it's not a a sort of heavy-handed and you know because Monet lost his mother we can extrapolate from that you know the source of his creative genius or, or or anything it's just she really does assemble what we know and very carefully listen to the sources and sometimes indicate a possible conclusion or, or direction and then almost pull back from that and just move on to staying, as I said, with the lens very much trained upon upon him at the centre of the book. Mm. And so there's that absence at the beginning, but then she goes on to to talk about the three women who were very, very important to him throughout his life doesn't she not I mean muses I don't know it sounds a bit old-fashioned doesn't it now muses but they were certainly centrally important to him artistically and in other ways well the first woman Camille really was a muse in that old-fashioned sense and she was a very um, fashionably dressed figure she was the daughter of a a merchant, you know, not not wealthy, but nevertheless enough to have a sort of striking wardrobe. And those images were important in his in his early painting, definitely. And he almost paints her obsessively. I mean, she she is the model for the early pictures in which there are the most famously women in the garden. I mean, that the, there are I think there's four women in in the garden. They're all her. But then when she dies, there's this very dramatic scene where he actually paints her on the deathbed. And 
Jackie Wurschlager sort of mentions this in the introduction, and it's a sort of end of the first major relationship in his life. It's a very, very dramatic ending. He, he grabs a, a, a canvas and, and starts to paint her in the, in the moments after she's died. And it's almost, as Jackie says, like the he's painting her disappearing. Uh, he's painting her slipping out of life and, and the colours in her face changing. It, it's an extraordinary episode and, and Jackie handles it absolutely brilliantly. But after that, although he goes on to have an, an, another very important relationship with a woman called Alice and then with Alice's daughter, who's called Blanche, figures actually start to drop out of his painting. He moves towards purely painting uh, landscapes and, and then towards abstract topics. And, and, and as I said, obviously the, the water lilies right at the end. Mm. Is the picture that he painted of her while she was dying, is that, can you see that? Is it on show anywhere? Do we know? Yes, I can't remember where it is. It is now. It wasn't during his lifetime. He kept that very privately and um, apparently for certain periods of his life had it in his bedroom. It's quite amazing that just that very short quote that you cite in your piece that he told in his old age, Monet said to his friend, you say, Georges Clemenceau, of course, the prime minister, that he had tried to paint the degradation of the colours that death had just imposed on the motionless face. I mean, it sort of sends a kind of chill and great emotion through you to imagine that he had just started to paint what was still death having been final, but there was still this dynamic process going on. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. You know, the unknown colour is the death pile coming into her face. And again, Jackie Wilshaw is very good at placing these quotes. I mean, that is quite a retrospective. It's later on in his life that he's actually discussing that with Clemenceau. And there, Jackie brilliantly sort of says a lot of the emotion has been stripped out. It's, it's a very technical description of what he was doing. But what I found very kind of plausible and, and, and riveting about it actually is, is the way he, he remembers that he was so shocked by it. Obviously, he spent his life trying to look at colour and, and to portray colour. He was so shocked by these colours. He just did the, the thing that it shocked him into doing what he did in every day, which was painting. And he didn't sort of stop to think, you know, is this a bit inappropriate or should I perhaps not be doing this right at this moment? It's, it's just an absolute instinct in him when impressed by something that he had seen to paint it. Mm. And she wasn't just his model, was she? She was his... No, she's the mother of his children. Yeah. She's his wife. Yeah. When she died, she had a, a baby, really, a one-year-old, their second child. But they were already living in a, in a sort of interesting uh, situation with another woman who he had already actually fallen in love with and her children were, six of her children were also present. And so the second woman was Alice, who he, he then, did he, he then married Alice, did he? Yes. Yes, yes. and so that was the, his sort of second major relationship. But as you say, she, he didn't really paint her, but she was sort of central in his life. Is that right? That's right. No, she's hugely important. And, the, and there are wonderful photographs of them towards the end of his life when they go to, to Venice. That's one of my favourite photographs in, in the whole book. And, you know, she, she's there with him and, and they're in St Mark's Square and the pigeons are, are landing on them. She's always with him and hugely important to his emotional stability. And when she dies, it happens to coincide her death with a terrible storm. So he feels as though he's completely unmoored. You know, the garden is an absolute sort of wreck and she has has died. And that again is, is a very, very powerful evoking of someone's inner life. It's not the same as, you know, being inside that person's mind, obviously, but it seems as sort of as close as you can get, really. Mm-hmm. And then the third woman was, well, she was his stepdaughter, really, but the crucial thing about her was, do you think, or it seems to be, was that she was an artist as well. So she understood his work and, and how important it was to him. And she just, she kind of helped him a lot. She was at his side the whole time. I mean, I would love to read more about her. I didn't know this story, but she was 
she was, uh, I think she was 10 when she first met him. And then her mother became his wife after Camille died. And so from a very early age, she was riveted by what he did. She used to go out with him in the morning, pushing his canvases in wheelbarrows. She really grew up uh, surrounded by this tremendous creativity that was sort of flowing through through him and became an artist and married his one of his sons so was was his stepdaughter and he was her father-in-law and he was the most important influence on on her own creative life so absolutely enormous relationship Mm. and he was entirely encouraging of her wasn't he oh yes Yes, it was really important for him, his stepdaughter, and as you, you say, this blended family, which has kind of, you know, had its origins too in, in the grief and loss of his first wife, is almost like a sort of, again, this kind of flourishing of something from a very, very difficult beginning. Yes, yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. You've obviously thought so much about biography, and you really, you know, get to the heart of it in this piece where you say, you know, you go head to head with that, you know, the constraint that you say quite rightly is at the heart of the genre. How does a biographer understand what their subject's life feels like to them? And that seems to me that something that lies beyond all the marshalling of facts and the understanding of context, that is really key. And you clearly feel that she she does do that, but it's a very, very big ask isn't it of empathy I mean I think what I am saying is that she has got as close as I can imagine any biographer being able to get and that doesn't mean that he's not unknowable at the end of the day I mean there's still this sense that you've been right up close to this amazingly creative and also very destructive person you know when he's when he's slashing up his canvases and and all the the gallery um owners are are in despair you know they promised this exhibition and and they're hoping to put it on and he suddenly decided these these canvases are just awful and and I'm going to get rid of them and and he's slashing and, and burning them and you see as a biographer she's able to get really really close to that what it actually feels like to be that kind of person, I don't think anyone can actually, from the outside, give a, a very, very clear account of that. Because, I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. It does sort of make me think, you know, all these people who sort of walk around accepting Lifetime Achievement Awards and feeling very happy with their creativity and all, all the rest of it. It must be much better, to, in a way, for, for them to be able to, to do that and to feel proud of what they've done. But he would often dismiss what he'd done, and it was all about pushing himself further and further in order to try and do something good. You know, everyone else is very happy to be purchasing these pictures, but internally, for whatever reason, he is just an absolutely driven creative force. And I think it's very, very difficult to actually get inside the life of someone like that. And what I think she, Jackie Wuschlega has achieved in this book is to just get really, really close to it. Mm. So as a biographer, because I know that you've gone into the minds of several people, some from what I was going to say, the olden days, like a kind of eight year old. <laughs> but, you know, do you know what I mean? Quite, figures which are quite, quite far back might seem to be more distanced. Well, I'll tell you what, I do always remember this. So my first biography was about Robespierre. So not as attractive a proposition. <laughs> really, but it, a bit difficult to get on his side sometimes. And I remember when the most, most magical thing that ever really happened for me is that Hilary Mantel reviewed that book. And because she was also very, very interested in Robespierre, she quoted someone saying that it was very difficult to really understand the power of Robespierre, you know, why he had such a, an influence and and then there was an anecdote where someone said ah oh, you know if you had seen his green eyes and and she said well you know Ruth Scare has, has got closer than most to seeing those green eyes and it, and it always stayed with me as a sort mm. of that is the most that a biographer can aspire to and if we can get as close as possible that's the task really I mean that that's the achievement 
to feel something of the pull of what happened. I think I might have read that review. Did she write it in our great competitor, the LRB? <laughs> we shouldn't say the name of the LRB. No, I think she did. Are we allowed to mention that? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. this We're is a great of republic course. of letters. <laughs> it, it absolutely of course, is. of course. I think I've read that review. It's a brilliant review. Is it in that review that she goes to visit some of the places... She goes to Paris and there's lots of monuments to sort of everybody else, but there's no mention of Robespierre, almost. That's right, yeah. Hillary was, I think she used to have a, a picture of Robespierre. And she, she was much more of a fan than I was, you know. I had my reservations. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hillary was really up for him. Not to just keep on banging on about, you know, the competitor we dare not name, but I just was going to add that I've been immersing myself in Hilary Mantel's nonfiction, because the collection of her, her yes. work is just about to come out and I'm, I'm writing about it actually for the TLS and also hosting an event at the British Library next week um, in celebration of it. And my God, the variety of yeah. tone and interest. And it is, it's what we always come back to, isn't it? The best writers are those who are so acutely interested in so many different things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's just been a privilege to kind of spend time with her as it Oh, I look again. forward to that so much, Alex. That's wonderful. And as we know, a wonderfully acute critic because she told us that Ruth had shown us Robespierre's green eyes. Yes. When everybody else maybe had a bit of difficulty showing them to us, but Ruth did it. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. It's completely fascinating. And I, and I get the impression that you, you approve of the book, to put it mildly. Absolutely. And next time we talk, Alex and Ruthie, more on gardening. Yes, yes. We keep we we keep saying this. Absolutely. You, you don't really need to ask yeah. us twice. We, we'll sort something out. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank Ruth. you. Thank you. Bye. to come on the show Fiona Stafford on Wordsworth's arboreal activities and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. The presence of nature in Wordsworth's work seems so central that it hardly needs remarking on, but what we perhaps miss is the detail and attention to individual species of which the poet was capable. 
Peter Dale and Brandon C. Yen's book, Versed in Living Nature, sets out to remedy that gap. And Fiona Stafford has reviewed it in this week's TLS. We're delighted she joins us now to take a walk through the Aspens and the Yews. Welcome, Fiona. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and talking about such a lovely subject. Well, I have to say... You have written a book entitled The Long, Long Life of Trees. So, I mean, you're the perfect person. I've been very interested in trees for a very long time. And I'm very interested, of course, as a professor of literature, in their literary dimensions, which are very, uh, very varied. Uh, so it was a great pleasure to be asked to review um, Peter and Brandon's book. You say that this is the second book by this pair of authors. They've already given us Wordsworth's gardens and flowers, haven't they? And that's obviously one aspect of his relationship with the flora surrounding him. But this is a, a step into completely different territory. Yes, I mean, not completely different. Um, they do have a, a, ch a chapter on gardens and obviously the work they did for their earlier book um, has very much fed into this but in this book because they're looking at trees um, they're not trees just confined to the garden at Dove Cottage uh, or Rydal Mount they are the trees that they found on their walks um, that they saw all around the Lake District and when they were touring as well there's an interesting chapter on their tour in Scotland for example so because both William and Dorothy Wordsworth were really interested in, in trees. Uh, we find them in their journals, in their letters and in their poetry. Um, so this book extends beyond the garden um, and just explores the importance of trees to them, uh, which is a bit different from flowers. Mm. I mean, Wordsworth didn't describe himself as a naturalist, did he? Although Dorothy might have done. She was much more interested in that sort of scientific dimension. But he didn't think of himself as a botanist or a naturalist in any way, did he? No, and I don't think Dorothy um, would describe herself as a botanist. She's probably a bit too modest for that. Um, but she was seriously interested. Um, and one of the books she was very keen to get was Withering's Arrangement of Plants, so that she could identify the different plants she saw. She was particularly interested once they'd moved from the West Country, which is where lyrical ballads emerged. Uh, they spent some time in Germany and then they settled uh, in Grasmere. And when she got to the Lake District, she saw different fauna from what she'd been seeing in Somerset. So she was very keen to uh, find out about the different plants and identify them. And of course, she informed a lot of uh, William's perception of the natural world as well. And although William was uh, perhaps less interested than Dorothy in identifying particular uh, flowers and trees, uh, he was absorbing what she said. And also he was incredibly perceptive. And you can see when he's um, writing his poems, trees have kind of rooted themselves in his imagination at an early age. Um, and when he returns to Grasmere at the end of 1799, some of the trees are still there. And you can also see the trees that have been growing in his mind, uh, being prompted into life in his poetry uh, by what he's encountering when he's back in his home area. You mentioned it in your piece. I love the fact that, as you say, there are individual trees, local trees or not particular trees that he talks about, but there's also, there are symbolic trees as well throughout his poetry. There's both the real and the symbolic level operating, isn't there? There certainly is. And um, some of the symbolism of trees uh, is a collective symbolism. It's something he, he's interested in, what trees mean to people locally and nationally. There had been lots of tree symbolism during the political debates of the French Revolution, which he's very interested in, contested trees like the oak tree and what that symbolised politically. Um, and he's also interested in how they how they work uh, locally. The, the Lord's Oak, which was not very far from Grasmere, for example, uh, was one that Wordsworth was aware of, and it had been used for a long time as a local meeting place. So, so trees have local symbolism and they also have national symbolism um, and also often have very personal associations for Wordsworth as well. The ash tree, for example, is an interesting one for him because in the prelude he writes about how the ash tree outside the cottage where he was um, fostered uh, when, when he was at school 
how he remembers lying in bed and hearing the great ash tree the other side of the window. And then that idea of an ash tree is picked up when he's in Cambridge and there's an important ash tree there for him. So trees have these different different meanings at different stages in his life. And for, for a poet who was so interested in memory and the way uh, that the mind grew and different parts of it were connected, trees are an absolutely perfect image for him. So, so they're working symbolically in lots of different ways. Well, I suppose I'm going to say something so obvious here, but, you know, we've just seen it incredibly recently with the horrible attack on the great sycamore tree. You saw the outpouring of shock and horror about that. But people also, you know, who didn't never been there, didn't really even know about it, seeming to express a kind of loss that that was really, you know, it was it was symbolic in some way. It represented something that went way beyond a single tree or a single place, didn't it? And I suppose this is, in some ways, the nature of romanticism. Yes, I mean, I think the sycamore gap tree brought home to many, many people who'd never even seen it how important a tree can be. The emotions invested in that tree were enormous and and deep and very very widely felt, uh, and people are still uh, very affected by it. So that sort of sense of a tree as a kind of centre and a focus uh, that gives meaning to so many people is something I think Words Wordsworth was aware of, and Dorothy Wordsworth as well. There in the book there are quite a lot of discussions of how they felt about uh, tree felling. This is a kind of recurrent theme in the book uh, and something we can very much relate to, I think. You, you can see how how important that, that still is to people. People respond to trees in general in one way, but then there are individual trees in particular places that have their own kind of character and aura um, and that people are very affected by. I wonder if you tell us what Wordsworth, what William and Dorothy might see when they stepped out from their home. There were kind of birches in the immediate surroundings of Dove Cottage, weren't there? But what were the trees that they would most often be accompanied by in their daily life? Well, at Dove Cottage, yeah, birches were important. Um, many of the kind of native trees of of Cumbria, um, so ashes, oaks, it depends where they were walking as to what they would see. There's still a very beautiful walk between Dove Cottage, uh, which is where they lived when they first arrived um, in the Lake District, and Rydal Mount, uh, which is um, where they moved a little bit later. And if you walk along what's known as the, the Coffin Path, um, you see um, the most beautiful trees still. Um, and Rydal Park uh, was full of old oak trees, which um, Wordsworth uh, was very familiar with. So a variety of native trees at that time. I like the point that you made as well about that there were that he's surrounded by local trees and, and native species, but also that he's rooted in his locality, but he's also got international links all over the world. And also, and he's not against, he's interested in trees from all around the world. You know, he's not a sort of nationalist about it. No, no, far from it. And when he got to Rydal Mount, um, he was planting trees, often trees that had a, a sort of, if you like, an emotional dimension. One, one of the interesting things in, in the book is when they, they talk about how he planted uh, the seeds of uh, a stone pine, which his friend, George Beaumont, had found in, in Rome. So Woods was very open to that kind of planting. And that's more when he's he's you know got a larger garden and he's also influenced by early 19th century interest in, in trees from around the world. But he's certainly not averse to it. I mean, I think because in the Guide to the Lake, um, there is a passage where he kind of sounds off about larch trees, which were a relatively new introduction and, and how they don't fit into the Lake District. People assume that is a kind of xenophobia emerging in in Wordsworth's attitude but I think it's not I think it's he's very interested in how trees are planted but he is open to you know all, all sorts of exotic exotic trees as as lots of people in the 19th century were at um, Rydal Mount he, he plants rhododendrons and things these were kind of really exciting introductions at this point uh, so so that's where you can see the author's expertise in in gardens informing some of their uh, discussion of trees as well so it's a very rich book 
Fiona, I really like large trees and I really love things made out of large wood. Would, would we have fallen out, Wordsworth and I, do you think? <laughs> well, um, it depends on where they were, I think. Um, I mean, large trees... Uh, <laughs> What's this way? He has a large tree in lyrical ballads, um, largely because it rhymes with March, I think, and he doesn't seem to have any <laughs> any objection to them in, in that poem. They're slightly put off during their tour of Scotland because when they're in Perthshire, they went to the Duke of Athol's estate and he'd introduced large trees and they had a rather kind of tiring day being um, dragged about by the gardener, as Dorothy puts it. So I think they slightly went off larches there. And then when they saw them being planted en masse in the Lake District, that's when they were worried. And I think perhaps if we think of it in terms of the debate over Sitka spruce in Scotland at the moment, um, when uh, a tree is mass planted as a timber tree. Um, that's, I think, what Wordsworth is objecting to and feeling, you know, it, it was transforming a familiar landscape that had grown naturally over many centuries. And, and in the Guide to the Lake, he's very interested in how the old stone cottages fit in and the trees that have been there a long time fit in. So it's a rather different kind of objection. He he certainly wasn't um, you know, turning Rydal Mount Garden into a large plantation. No, no, indeed. I take that point. I'm very interested in, in what you said a few minutes ago, that a larch appears because it provides the rhyme he needs. Now, you're, <laughs> you're, you're saying, you know, obviously, sometimes there are poetic and linguistic demands that he needs to pay attention to. But actually, the attention that he gives in the poetry, um, you suggest, is very much paying really expert and interested attention into individual species, isn't it? Oh, very much so. And I think we see that particularly um, in a poem like Yew Trees, uh, a wonderful poem where he uh, begins by describing um, the Lawton Yew, which is an absolutely enormous ancient yew uh, in the village of Lawton. And then he he moves um, to the Borrowdale Yews, uh, which were a group of, of four yew trees um, in Borrowdale. And he describes their trunks in extraordinary detail. I mean, it's a very, very beautiful poem, uh, but it could only really have been written by someone who'd gone and paid very, very close attention um, to how a yew tree grows and, and these particular ones as well. So, yeah, he's very interested. And of course, because he's looking very closely at these different species, the character of the tree really comes across um, in, in his poems as well, because yew trees, of course, are very different from ash trees or very different from larch trees. They're almost sort of the polar opposite, I would say, of a larch tree um, to look at. And, and they have their own kind of atmosphere and they're, they're so ancient and he's fascinated by that. And he conveys all of that. But he, he uses quite um, Miltonic language uh, when he's describing the yew trees, um, which suits the kind of the grandeur and the dignity of the trees. Say a bit more about what that means. When you say Miltonic language, that sounds fascinating. And he, he sort of uses a different form of poetic language. Well, well, tell us a bit more about that. Yes, if I had it to hand, I'd read you a little bit because then you could see exactly what I mean. But he talks about, um, he uses adjectives like serpentine um, because he's, he's conveying um, the very strange shapes that you get within a yew tree they're very they're very kind of dark trees they're evergreen and their trunks as they get older and older because they can live for hundreds thousands of years they take different often snake-like forms uh, and you can see words with looking at that and, and then finding a language which is very different from some of his his simpler language you know it depends what he's what he's describing as what kind of language he uses but it's very striking in yew trees Mm. I love the fact that you say that they work across time and space uh, and also traditions and literary influence. I love the, the detail that you tell us that he used to go around and drop holly berries in people's gardens, plant them in people's gardens to remember Robert Burns. Yeah, he did. He went in with a handful of holly berries uh, to his friend Mrs Fletcher's uh, garden in Lancrig, which is uh, down the road, the other side of Grasmere from Dove Cottage, um, and he planted them especially for Burns because in Burns's poem, The Vision, 
Burns is imagining uh, a Scottish muse, Scottish local muse, which is important, a rustic muse, coming and giving him a, a crown, not of laurels, which is the classical, the classical poet's crown that Apollo might have given, but a, a crown of holly. And Wordsworth was very influenced by Burns and very a huge admirer of Burns. Um, so he he sees the holly as Burns's tree, and he he wants to be planting planting hollies, seeing them flourish in the way that muse of the vision wants. Robert Burns to flourish as a poet. I have to say, though, a crown of holly would not be as comfy as a laurel crown. I'd rather have a wreath of laurel. I know. it. Re- that sounds ouch, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. It but does. Burns didn't mind a bit of difficulty. No, no, they liked it, in fact, didn't they, I suppose? I mean, obviously, we've just been talking a bit about Scotland there. I was really interested, as somebody who lives in Ireland, with what you said about Wordsworth's tour in Ireland and how he reacted to trees, the political situation, the politics of tree planting. I wonder if you'd tell us a bit about that. Yes, I think it's one of the very strong chapters in the book, uh, looking at Wordsworth and his tour of Ireland and, and seeing how complicated his reactions are because... The politics of tree planting in Ireland are complicated because in many ways they were associated with uh, the planters. Um, the Irish Irish nationalists uh, were not very keen on the plantations that were enforced in the in the 17th century and, and, and also uh, what they thought of as the big houses where you would get landscaped English-style parkland. Um, these became political, very politicised, and, you know, there were revolutionary groups like the white boys who were removing hedges and removing orchards that had been planted because they felt it was uh, an imposition on on Ireland Um, and this became very fraught obviously uh, leading up to the United Irishmen's rising in 1798 so there's that kind of context but then at the same time there are these Older, different kind of attitudes to trees, Uh, for example, hawthorn trees, very much associated with the fairies in Ireland. So there were lots of trees that had older folklore beliefs. And Wordsworth, I think, is very kind of conflicted when he sees um, those trees, ancient thorns, um, and partly because then for him now associated with uh, Catholicism and when he goes to Ireland, it is um, when the kind of debate for, about Catholic emancipation is, is going on. This is in um, 1829. So it's quite a late trip from his point of view. And by that stage, Wordsworth is more kind of conservative in his attitudes. He's troubled by Catholic emancipation. He's, he's troubled by lots of reforms that are going on in a way that he he would have had, I think, a very different attitude uh, 30 years before. But the authors kind of tease all of this out, and it's very, very interesting and complicated. And the idea that felling a tree could be an actually a revolutionary act <laughs> in Ireland, um, whereas in the Lake District, it's seen by Dorothy very much, and Wordsworth as well in many places, as a, a sort of act of vandalism. It, it's very complicated. That's so interesting. I can't wait to read that bit, actually, because as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, Blackthorn and Whitethorn in Ireland still have a very symbolic presence. I mean, it's still how um, certain trees, certainly in the countryside, are talked about. And I'm always sort of resist this idea of talking about things like, you know, fairy rings, ras, as they're called where I live. Because you don't want to sound, you know, you you don't want to sound like stereotyping that kind of folkloric culture. But actually, still, you wouldn't disrupt a, a fairy ring if you found it on your land. I mean, it wouldn't be done. I've rather gone off piste there. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I, don't just... think, I think, no, because you're talking about local attention to detail, which is what yeah. Wordsworth was doing. And that's still happening, obviously. Yes, it is. I wonder if we could, we could talk about this all day. It's it's just, it's so fascinating. But I wonder, Fiona, if you'd just tell us about your own work. I mentioned it right at the beginning. You've written extensively about um, trees and about flowers and gardens. Uh, but of course, now you're in the middle of editing the Oxford Companion to English Literature, the Romantic Period. You're kind of synthesising all, all this, all your interests and all your work in one place to an extent, I guess. Yes, that's right. It's the romantic volume of the 
Oxford Literary History that I'm I'm writing and I have been working on for some time. And yeah, I am synthesising lots of different interests, but I will be giving it a more environmental dimension than I might have done if I'd written it uh, 20 years ago. Not that Mm. I haven't always been interested, but I'm very pleased to see that literary studies are much more open to the environmental dimensions of literary texts. And I think the Romantic period, you know, traditionally we might think of it as people sort of turning to nature. Um, But that now takes on a very different meaning um, when we understand that nature, instead of being a kind of endless cornucopia just there for people to turn to when they feel like it if they're feeling a bit stressed or uh, whatever reason they might be turning to it it's, it's not something that's just there as a unchanging um, mm. resource as words are tended to see it quite understandably what we are much more conscious of you know the vulnerability of nature and I find myself reading poems and stories from this this period and thinking oh and that and that species is now under threat or whatever so it has a sort of importance I think for us this period which um you know in a way it's rather unfortunate that it that it has got that new edge um but you know that'll be part of what I'm looking at it's absolutely fascinating to talk to you about all this you know the conjunction of all these different ways of thinking about the work and about the world Fiona thank you so much for enlightening us we really appreciate it Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I I could carry on talking all day, but um, it's been a great pleasure. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Ruth Skur and Fiona Stafford. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.